Albus Dumbledore says, Dark and difficult times lie ahead. Soon we must all face the choice between what is right and what is easy. We live in the age of expediency. Expediency is the quality of being convenient or practical despite possibly being immoral or improper. Whatever it takes to be convenient. So I crowdsource some expedient examples from my pastor friends. So give me some examples of how we are expedient in our life. And I immediately unfriended them all because they went after my life hard. <laughs> and now I'm going to go after yours. How about fast food? Convenient, but probably not the healthiest of options. And don't say you're getting a salad that's convenient at fast food. <laughs> Speeding. I need to be somewhere quicker over the potential increased harm of others. How about texting? It prioritizes information and communication over face-to-face -face personal relationship. That dig, dug deep in my heart. How about ordering from Amazon? I don't need to explain that one, do I? I still do it. I'll do it tomorrow, too. Hashtag activism. You know what a hashtag activism is, right? Expressing moral outrage on, of something on social media, putting a little hashtag about it, but yet you really do nothing about it. Credit cards. The use of debt and the interest to secure what you want now. How about just being a wallflower about your faith and your refusal to live out your faith because you will not fit in with how others are living and expecting you to live? How about doing everything you can so things are done to how you like them done so you can stay in your appearance of control? <laughs> Maybe you make compromises in your life because you just don't want to argue. Expedience. How are you expedient in your life? Where are you the most expedient in your life? And then what motivates your expediency? Is it fear or is it love? Caiaphas in this passage and the rest of the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin is the religious ruling power, the authority, live a life of expediency out of fear. That is their motive, fear, in why they want to kill, get rid of, sacrifice Jesus. Let's look at John eleven forty five to 46. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary, who had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. The Pharisees and the Jews, they, they were getting upset with what Jesus was doing because of his words. We, we talk about in the passages earlier that he was, he was explicitly saying, like in John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. He, he's making these kind of explicit claims that he is 
one with the Father, that he's equal with God, that he's divine, and he's, they're getting upset with these words as, as one might. And Jesus, right, we talked about, he redirected them. He said, stop thinking about my words so much. Stop over-focusing and being upset by them. And think about, pause, what do I actually do? What am I doing? And what does my actions and my works, what do they point to? And you think about just what just happened prior to this passage, what we heard, and what everyone is now talking about. Jesus, his actions, was he raised someone from the dead. He physically raised someone from the dead. Lazarus, John eleven four, 4, and we know he did this, but when Jesus heard it said, the illness does not lead to death, it is for the glory of God, so the Son of God may be glorified through it. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead so he may be glorified, for the Father may glorify him, so that people may see that he and the Father are one. Now, we are told that many people believe this. We don't know the extent of what that actually means. What does it mean they actually believed it? But they at least like, hey, we're willing to follow this guy for a little bit. And then some other people... They ran and tattled to the rest of the Pharisees what Jesus did. They ran and, t- let's think about what they said. They ran to tell on Jesus, he raised someone from the dead. In verse 47, so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. Just a couple of uh, terms to understand. The chief priests are all, there's, there's one chief priest, and he is appointed, and he serves a term, a long term. The, the chief priest of Caiaphas, he actually served 18 years, which, a, which is a pretty long term. Um, so the chief priests are all the male extended family of the high priest. So all the male, they're all part of the priestly family, so they're all the chief priests with him, but although he is the high chief priest. The Pharisees, when I use that word Pharisees, it is like, it's a conservative sect of Judaism. So, you know, there's like uh, Presbyterians and there's Baptists. Like there's all, they have some different theological focus. That's what the Pharisees are, but they're really conservative. They're really worried about keeping God holy and protecting the law and abiding by it. They were often local synagogue leaders. They were awful community leaders. Uh, Lots of, there are scribes, kind of theologians. Uh, And then there's this term, the council. The council is the Sanhedrin, which is actually the word that's used here. The Sanhedrin is the the ruling religious authority for Israel and is made up of all the chief priests. There's 70 people, well, 71, you count the chief chief priests. Uh, The chief priests and some Pharisees, almost all of the chief priests, all the chief priests were of a different, they weren't Pharisees. They were called Sadducees, a different group. And the difference between, major difference between Pharisees and Sadducees is that the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They didn't believe in life to come after you died. Pharisees held on to that because they were actually more biblical in their mindset. But the Sanhedrin consisted mostly of right, all, all Sadducees, and then there's a few Pharisees that are involved in this. So it's just predominantly the chief priest family. So just, I just wanted to get a concept of what's going on here. The Sanhedrin are gathered together. So the Pharisees go in and they, they talk to the Sanhedrin, like we need to bring this to the religious leaders and they need to do something about it. They're gathered around, they're debating and reporting of the reported work of Jesus, that he resurrected someone. 
more important, that he believes that he is the Messiah, that he is the anointed one, and that people believe that he is the Messiah, and what people think is that he is the Messiah. He's going to save them from their oppressor. And what you have to know, right, is Rome is the one that rules over Israel at this point, right? Rome is a occupier of Israel. They, they control. What, what Rome did, Rome believed in a pluralistic society as long as you deferred to the emperor. So they would go into countries and they would conquer them, and you can pretty much run yourselves as long as you pay tribute to the emperor, you give us money, you know that we are in charge, we'll let you do your religious practices, whatever god you want to worship, but you just know the emperor is above all, and you give us the proper tribute. Pretty good deal. For the most part, that's how they kept peace with people, but that kind of suppression. So the Israelites think, yes, the Messiah is the one that's going to throw out Rome to save us. And in the midst of it, all the Sanhedrin, when they hear about Jesus, they hear people thinking that he is the Messiah, that he's actually resurrected from the dead, something most of them didn't believe in. They're asking, what are we to do? What are we to do with this guy? In verse 48, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Did you hear their fear? There wasn't love here. They are concerned about, if we do nothing about Jesus, people will continue to flock to him, people will believe that he's Messiah, and then what's going to happen? It will catch the attention of Rome. There'll be disruption amongst the people, and Rome will pay attention like, hey, this is not peace. This is not our agreed upon. And so Rome will come away, and they'll take away the power of the Sanhedrin. They'll take away the people, and they'll take away the, the, the nation, right? This is what they mean. That they'll take away our temple, our ability to worship God, and therefore what we have control over. They'll destroy our people group. And so it's clearly, they're not worried about the people dying, that they're worried about they're losing their authority over the people. The irony is, this is, you know, this is around 30, 33, 35 uh, AD. 35 years after this time, Rome will do exactly this thing. They will take away the temple. They will take away everything and destroy it. It's a prophecy for another time. What they're basically bickering about is what are we accomplishedly arguing about this? Nothing works to suppress Jesus. What do they fear? Do they fear God? Do they fear that they're doing what is right or what is moral? They don't care. It's not even a question. They fear losing their power and losing their control over their little world. Verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, he was the high priest for 18, like that particular time, that's what it means, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people. Not that the whole nation should perish. He's talking to the rest of the Sanhedrin. And, and typical, as, as we're reported as historians, is that uh, Caiaphas and most of the high priests were rude and arrogant because they thought they knew best. And so this is 
uh, Caiaphas is saying, look at, you're not, you're not being smart about this. You're being quite idiotic. It's better for you. He's not saying better for the people of Israel. This is better for you, for us, not the people of Israel. It's that we, he should die. If he dies, this is a good thing. This is to our advantage, not necessarily the advantage of the people. And so we don't lose power, and we don't lose control. We don't lose our power and prestige. Caiaphas is saying Jesus should be sacrificed for our expediency. Justice and truth are sacrificed for political expediency. That is what's happening right now. Where are truth and justice sacrificed in your life for your expediency, for your convenience? Where do you promise, where do you compromise your faith and fit in with others? Where your actions are compromised so you don't stand out? You you do understand, I've been talking about this with the youth, that we, God calls us to be holy. And holy is this concept that we are set apart, that we are different than the world. We're not better. We're different. God is holy because he is wholly different than the world. in his character. And we are called to be different. We are not called to conform to the world. We are called to be transformed into his holiness. This is what we're called to. And yet where in our actions do we more conform to the world than are transformed to God? Where in the world in the world are your words silent so you don't offend because people don't believe the same things about Jesus as you do. Verse 51. He did not say this on his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into the one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. So Verses 51 and 52, this is a post-resurrection editorial insert that John puts in. He now knows who Jesus is. He has seen the resurrection. It's not that Caiaphas knows, oh, that Jesus is going to die for sins. Caiaphas is like, we should kill Jesus for our expediency, and yet in the way that God works, this is the gospel, by the way. This is the gospel. Even when we fail, even when we intend evil, God will intend it for good. God will make it good. Caiaphas is asking for an evil thing. And God God makes this evil thing a prophetic thing in which Jesus doesn't die so that the Sanhedrin can go on. He dies so that all may have life. This is the good news. Caiaphas is callous and expedient with his words and his plans, but God is not. God uses our callous and expedient words for his glory. This is how God works. He he is the sovereign God. He uses our broken wills and plans and all of our sin, and it doesn't thwart his plans. He's not like, whoa, that is really surprising to me. He can use all of that 
This is, this is the, the Joseph passage of, of, in Genesis 50, 20, right? What Joseph's brothers intended for evil, Joseph understand that was actually meant for good. This is the sovereign power of God. This is the good news. Caiaphas means Jesus to be a substitutory death so that he can live. So that he can have power. God means that Jesus is a sacrificial lamb, the sacrifice that is offered so that all may live, that sin and death may be conquered, not just power. John 1, 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him. John the Baptist said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In verse 52, it's not just talking about ethnic Israel, but all God's children scatter around. Once again, this is, a, this is a post-resurrection word that's inserted in so we understand this moment. That he's talking about all the Gentiles, all people of God. Gentiles are non-ethnic Israel, right? Non-ethnic Jews that are all included as God's people. That God will gather them all up. And this we even get in his, uh, talking about in John 10, 16. And Jesus said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold, not Israelite. I must bring them also that they listen to my voice so that there'll be one flock, one shepherd. Death cannot, Caiaphas cannot, you and I cannot, Satan cannot thwart God's providential plan. This is his world. He is the creator. He is the ruler of everything. There's nothing outside of his control. He alone is God and he alone is good. He alone is sovereign. In verse 53, after all this, that, that Caiaphas comes up with this plan. They come up with this plan like, yes, this is a plan. He should die for our benefit. They just don't understand what that means. And they actually go make plans because they can't put him to death. They come up with a scheme we'll find a way that will convince Rome, Pilate, to kill him for us. Because Rome was the only one, because they are this providential power, that they, that they are the ones that only get to kill people. That's their control over Israel. And so this Sanhedrin, come up with a plan, will convince Pilate to do this for us. But of course, it's not the Sanhedrin that decide that Jesus will die. It's Jesus decides that he will die. In John 10, 18, no one takes it, his, his life, no one takes it from me, but I lie it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father, this, this power, this authority, this reign, I and the Father are one. I get to decide who takes my life, when it happens, and when it doesn't. People don't take Jesus' life. He offers it freely. You see, the application is that we live in a world of sin and death. You know it. You turn on the news. You walk out your door. You look in your own heart. It's a world of sin and death. It's a world that accommodates itself. It's a world that accommodates itself to sin and death, to not being like God. It's a world that lives for itself and for itself only. This is a, we live in an age of expediency. 
And this is not just a current age. This is an age since the beginning of ages. This is the heart of all humanity. Whatever is convenient, whatever is beneficial for me, whatever is good for me, that is good. Like somehow we are able to determine what is actually good. I know enough now in my life that I actually don't know what is good for me. Do you see this figure? (laughs) This is proof that I do not know what is good for me, and yet I still consume it. Somehow thinking, this is for my good. Except for bacon. That I know. I just know it. It just has to be, right? It just has to be for our good. I don't care what doctors say about that. It's good. Whatever we think is moral, whatever, our beha- right, whatever we think is true, that's true. It's whatever is good for me. It's expedient as long as it benefits me. And we might put on the caveat, and, and doesn't hurt others, as if we can understand one of our actions when it hurts or doesn't hurt others. It doesn't matter whether it's moral in the eyes of God. It's our, our behavior is expedient. As long as it benefits and it pleasures me, it is okay. I know that's not how you live, though. I've been going through a class with the uh, uh, middle schoolers and high schoolers about uh, marriage and sexuality to our teens. Uh, Here's the good news. I will do that for the adults post-Easter. I should have done the other way around, but, you know, I don't always know what's good. We just proved that out. Right, so... Uh, this week, uh, there is an article in the Washington Post, or actually it was a couple weeks ago, uh, and it is, uh, consent is not enough. We need, need a new sexual ethic. I actually encourage you to go read this article. It is actually, it's like Jody said, it's like, this should be required reading for every college student. I actually should be required reading for every high school student. Um, it, it's, not, it's not necessarily written by a Christian. Like there's, it might, she might be a Christian. I don't know. But there's no kind of, well, she does quote Thomas Aquinas and Augustus, but, but here, her point is, is that we live in a culture in which the, the only sexual ethic is consent. And listen, hear this very clearly. That is the minimum sexual ethic. There ought to be consent. If there's not consent, it is not moral no matter what. But that is the bare minimum. And what this article goes in and about is that talking is out, is that men and women that have lived in this ethic of just consent, if I just consent, that they're doing sexual acts, they're living out sexual acts, that they realize I come away, I know I consent it, but I don't feel good. I actually feel gross. I'm harmed. Physically at times, emotionally, and spiritually. I mean, you, you get to this article, and, you're like, and it's like begging for this new sexual ethic, and I'm just screaming, no, we don't need a new one. We need to resurrect the one from Scripture. Not necessarily the one the church has proclaimed out, but the one that comes from God. Because consent is not the, not the, the measure of the sexual ethic. It's the minimum and we talked about this, is that the purpose of sex, the purpose of sex points to, it is the oath sign of the vow you make in marriage that you promise 
to love that person no matter what. I mean, that's the essentials of your vows. No matter how they behave, no matter what they do, I will love you. And so that, you only make your vows once. I mean, you could try to make them over and over again, but why? You said them once, why do you need to say them again? What the oath sign does is it reminds you over and over and over again of the promise. So every time you have sex, it points and should remind you of the promises that you make or that you made. Now, did I ruin sex for you? <laughs> Maybe. But here's the thing. So the sexual ethic is if you're having sex that's not connected to a promise, what is it pointing to? Nothing. Or even worse, to no promises. Think about this. How does that fit in your life? That this person loves me with no promises, which is not a love at all. And more to the point is that sex doesn't just point to your promises. It does. But then it also reminds you of how God, what God promises you. God's promise, God's love is promise-keeping love. He says, I will love you despite who you are. That's covenant love. When I say promise-keeping love, that's covenant love. That is the highest form of love. That is the love that we are called to. That is what sex is necessarily tied to. It's how it's created and designed for. And so when it's removed from that, it becomes harmful in a multitude of ways. Spiritually, emotionally. And here's the thing that we have known throughout all of Scripture. Scripture uses over and over again that all sexual morality is connected to idolatry, worshiping other gods or self. So you can not worship God, it will lead to sexual immorality. Or if you're living in sexual morality, I guarantee you it will lead to worshiping other gods. It's scripture over and over, this metaphor, because sex is meant to point to your promises, where it's ultimately meant to point to the, the one marriage in which God promises to you. And if you don't understand that, then you do not understand the created purpose and goodness of sex. Now, just to clarify, you do not need to have sex to understand the promises of God. You don't. It's just one way in which God provides. It's his created order in which he provides for that. So we live in a culture that says, Christians, we don't speak that out. We can't live that out. We can't talk about it in that way. We're considered hate if we talk about sex in that way. Although I guarantee you, if you actually talked about sex in that way to people in the world, how can they be upset with you? I mean, they could. I mean, anybody could be upset with anyone, right? I mean, we just know how that works in this world. <laughs> but we begin to actually talk about what the Bible actually says. We can speak out. Instead of we live in a world that says, I can define things how I want because this seems pleasurable to me. This seems like a good thing for me. And we already know, you already know, that you do not know what's good for you. You prove that day in and day out. Why would you know about sexuality, what's good for you? And so we think about, I can define it. I could define myself. I could define what's good for me. Here's, here's the truth. I want you to hear it very clearly. Instead of, uh, of trying to under, understand, like, this is all who I am, and this is 
who my identity, this is what scripture tells you very clearly your identity is. Such a big concept in our, in our culture. And we get it wrong as well, Christians. This is our identity. We are the children of God. You want to begin to build your identity? That's all it is. You belong to God. I am a child of God. I have been given many roles, not identities. I've been given many roles in this world, which are gifts of God, not my own doing. I've been given the role of son. It doesn't identify who I am. It's a role that I have responsibilities. My identity is I am a child of God. I've been given a role of neighbor. I have responsibilities as a neighbor. I've been given a role as a husband. That does not define who I am. So if you're desiring to, to have a husband and to have a wife, that's not necessarily a bad desire, but it is not your identity. If it is your identity, you have made it an idol of something. I have, I have the role of a father. I have responsibilities of that, but it is not my identity. I tell you what, I make it my identity too much. I, I have the role of a pastor. It is not my identity. That is not who I am. I am a child of God. That is what scripture tells us. I have the role of coach. I, I coach sometimes. It's not my identity. It's my role. I have the role of a friend. I have a lot of responsibilities as a friend. None of those roles define me. And yet in this world, we constantly use those roles to define who we are. It's just like the same thing. I'm a sinner. It's just a role I play quite well. <laughs> it's not my identity. And if it becomes your identity, you are going down a dark hole. And it's not what God says. God, does, if you lie, you're not a liar. Don't call other people liars. Call them out for their lies. We're all sinners. It's not our identity. Our identity is that we're beloved children of God. Do you see the difference? God defines me. God defines us. God creates us. God creates me. He creates marriage. He creates sexuality. He is the one that gets to find and create and understand and explain that to us, not us. All the pleasures of this world, God creates for a created purpose, and we are to use them for his created purpose. Not define or abuse or think. This is how they ought to be used. The culture we live in, this world of self-expediency, is all motivated by fear. It's at times this fear is masked as love, but it is always fear. It's the fear of not fitting in. It's the fear of not being loved by others. It's the fear of not being in control. It's the fear of losing prestige or the fear of being found out, of being a fraud. None of that is love. None of that is love. None of that is promise-keeping love, is it? 1 John 4, 18 through 19 says it this way. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, 
And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. And how does he love us? By his promises. By a God who says something and always keeps his word. This is how he's creating us to be. He's creating us to be in the same character that we promise to love and we will keep our word. In this world of expediency, Jesus says in Matthew 6, 24, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus loves us with his promises. He loves us, though, by the example of the cross, laying down his life for us. And we are to follow him. We are to follow that example of love, and we are to lay down our life for others. I just want you to hear the difference. Love is laying down your life for others. Love is not saying, hey, this is what makes me happy and is pleasurable for me. Now, here's the great thing about that. When you actually learn to love to lay down in your lay down your life, and you learn to be a promise-keeping love, you understand, begin to understand, that is the, one of the greatest pleasures. It's one of the greatest experience of love, if understanding that you actually are loved like that, and that you begin to love like that. We follow a promise-keeping love, not by leaving what is expedient for us, but by the denial of ourself for the sake of, of others. I'm not saying be a martyr. You know who you are. Doing what is right, not because it's easy, because it's just. Because it's right. Because it's true. Because it's good. Because it's the character of who God is. We should be outraged. We talked about this last week, right? The outrage and the grief. We should be outraged by the amount of expediency in our own life. And we should be grieved by the amount of expediency in our own life. And our outrage and our grief, they should move us not to fear, but to love. Which by definition is not fearful. It's not fearful of anything. It should move us to a promise-keeping, laying down your life for the benefit of others. Our outrage and grief should move us to love God with everything about us. Heart, soul, mind, strength. Our love, we love him because he first loved us. Jesus never lived a life of expediency. There was nothing in his life he did for expediency. Jesus lived in a dark and difficult time, and he always chose what is right. He always chose love. He loved everyone he encountered. We live in a dark and difficult time as well. Will you choose what is right over what is easy? Will you choose this promise-keeping love? Our outrage and grief should move us to love our neighbors. Not by accommodating their expediency. Not by accommodating their social mores. But by loving them 
by living out the character of God. We are the children of God. We are his beloved. Full stop. Full stop. Live like him and love like him. Let us pray. Gracious and holy God. Lord, we know that we fail to live in the standard. But we know that that is not our identity, our brokenness and our sin. And for that, we are incredibly grateful. Praise be to God. Praise be to you that you love us despite our brokenness. And you love us so much that you will not let us stay in this moment of expediency and sin and darkness in our lives. That you will send your spirit, you sent your spirit to transform us into your character and to begin to understand that you know what is good, that you know what is just, that you know what is right for us. And you've given us all these things which are beautiful when they're used to live wisely and skillfully for you. Lord, we, we plead that we are transformed into that character and do not conform to the expediency of this world. We plead this. Thank you. Thank you for calling us children of God. Thank you for your promises. May they ring in our ears forevermore. And teach us day by day to live out your love and to understand your love more and more. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's children said, Amen. Amen.